On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of Candy Montgomery and Betty Gore. Welcome to Crime Bar. Hey, pretty lady. Thanks. <laughs> Is that what you say to like a guy who's like on the street? Like, hey, pretty lady. You just say, thanks. Thanks. thanks and to you too, <laughs> pretty lady. No, I was just trying to not to burp again. So oh. it was one of those sort of like. Hey, you classy lady. <laughs> yes. Not gross at all. My comebacks will not be great today. Just warning you. Well, they won't be with that attitude. <laughs> As I cry, <laughs> my attitude's fine. No, you got a great attitude. Thanks, girl. Yeah, no problem, no problem. You got a great butt. Oh, thank you. I think that of you. Well, I think that of you. <laughs> Again. Thank you. No, you're great. No, you're greater. You're greater. You're greater. I'm excited about this story today. I don't what? know what it is, but I'm excited. I'm doing the story of Candy Montgomery. Well, that name makes her sound like a stripper. <laughs> I can't hear the name Candy without being like, yeah. and. Yeah, no, she's a um, a housewife. But she used to no. be. You know, I'm kidding. No. no, I'm kidding. I'm I, kidding. She, it's a beautiful name. And I love Candy. <laughs> I love to eat it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of my information came from a book called Evidence of Love, which was written by John Bloom and Richard Atkinson. I also saw that HBO and Hulu are both doing a limited series on this story. Exciting. I didn't want to watch it in preparation because it's, you know, obviously a little fictional fictionalized oh okay but i actually don't know that they've come out i like it when they both do something it's kind of like when uh netflix and hulu did that fire fest documentary it's like which one's better yeah so candace lynn wheeler was born on november 15th 1950 so she's a friggin scorpio Scorpio. also i just realized we're recording on november 15th i was like you do know the day (laughs) today is the 15th that's so weird happy birthday candy well, well. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to be wishing her any good things. Yes, yeah, well. So her name is Candace, but she goes by Candy, so that's what we're going to call her. She was an army brat, so her family was bouncing from base to base all over the world, like since she was a baby. So as a kid, she was very friendly and outgoing, so regardless of where they moved, she made friends right away. She was very competitive, but then also would become bored very easily. So, like, she'd compete to win over a friend, but then she couldn't stick with any one friend for too long. Or when she got older and she started dating, she'd compete against her peers for, like, the popular boy's attention and then get bored of him once she got him. Like, that sort of thing. So, I don't know if she had, like, ADD or what, but she was definitely struggling with her. she just was attracted to the new shiny thing. Basically, yeah. yeah. And then as soon as it's not shiny anymore, she's like, okay, anyways. Something shiny over there. (laughs) Yeah. But there's just evidence of that being from like the time that she was very little. So that's, I guess that's just who she is. Yeah. And then like most girls, she had major conflict with her mom. Although most girls, I feel like end up having 
conflict with their moms when they're like teenagers but she can't candy can't remember a time when she didn't have conflict with her mother interesting once when she was four her family was stationed in france and she asked one of her little friends if he wanted to race her to the water fountain so they're racing and he ends up beating her by just a couple of inches and candy exploded with rage she was so mad that she grabbed a glass jar that was nearby and slammed it on the ground and the glass just, you know, exploded everywhere. And a piece of it hit her in her face, like in her like for, like eyebrow area. Yeah. And it cut her so deeply that she had to be taken to the emergency room for stitches. And, you know, like it, I mean, it was small, but it was so deep. And, you know, how head wounds, they just like bleed and oh, bleed yeah, profusely. Like, profusely. So I mean, that's what's happening. And little Candy is freaking out. The blood's pouring into her eyes. She can't see. Her cut hurts. And she's only four. So mm-hmm. obviously she's very scared. Rage throwing a jar at four is pretty crazy. It's pretty intense. <laughs> pretty intense. So she screamed and ride the whole way to the hospital. And when she got inside, multiple nurses needed to hold her down just to get a better look at the cut. Like that's how out of control she was. Mm -hmm. She's four. So it's taken like multiple adults just to like hold her still to see what they're looking at, you know? And rather than comfort her terrified, bleeding child, Candy's mom sat calmly in a chair next to the bed. And her only contribution was to scold her. She put her finger to her mouth and said, shh, what will the people in the waiting room think of you? She's one of those. She's very cold. Yeah. Candy said that was such a striking moment in her memory, you know, being so scared and hurt and not understanding what was going on. And all her mom did was shame her for letting her feelings out. It's like image is always going to override her child. Exactly. And, you know, that laid the groundwork for that exact thing. Yeah. It laid the groundwork also for Candy to be like one of those people who kept their feelings inside, buried deep down. And because her mom cared so much about appearances, Candy also grew up to be more concerned with everything looking right rather than actually being right. So she was, as an adult, she was a seemingly happy and very bubbly person. But I think that was just because she buried all the ugly. So what else is she going to show? Absolutely. So even though she didn't seem to have a very loving or affectionate mother, Candy herself was actually a very loving and maternal type, even from the Hmm. time that she was very little. She always had this sort of like fantasy in her mind that she just really wanted to be a mommy. And she wanted to live on a big farm one day filled with animals and all of her kids but she was never like like obsessed with boys. She wasn't like boy crazy or anything. Yeah. So she said like as an adult, she was like, I don't know how I imagined getting all those kids <laughs> because yeah. I never envisioned having like a husband. It was just like me and my kids. So she grows up, she finishes school, she gets a job as a receptionist and promptly becomes bored the way she tends to. So she decides right then and there, she's got to find a wealthy husband so she doesn't have to keep doing this whole working for a living thing. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, that sucks. I get it. It, it, It's not fun. No, (laughs) it is not fun for anybody. No. So she starts to date, but everyone would be ruled out pretty quickly for one reason or another. She had a big checklist of items that she needed her future hubby to check off, and uh, no one could fit the bill. I was like, good for her for having high standards. <laughs> love it. Yes, we love it, to see it. It is good. It's it's good, but there's a, there's a fine a line. Yeah, yeah. you, you got to find the balance. So she dated a guy named Fred that got rolled out pretty quickly because he didn't make enough money. Then she dated a guy named Dave who got rolled out for a lack of education. 
Then she dated this third guy whose name she couldn't even remember. She said that she seriously considered marrying that one because her best friend, Kathy, had married this guy's best friend. So in her mind, it was like, oh, that's perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, double dates forever. Yeah, forever. But I can't remember his name. Yeah, oh, but then her friend Kathy moved away. So then Candy's like, well, why would I, there's no point in marrying Kathy's new husband's best friend. They don't even live here anymore. You know, kind of like in my warped brain, I'm like, if I had, there was like a, a an eligible bachelor next door to like you guys forever, I'd be like, that seems more tempting than pursuing something farther away <laughs> in the hopes of double dating forever. Yeah. So then one day her coworker, an older woman named Marie Montgomery, asked if Candy would be open to going on a blind date with her son, Pat, who was in town visiting. And Candy, she didn't say this to Marie, but she was like, he did not sound interesting at all. Mm -hmm. But I mean, she figured like worst case scenario, she just gets a free meal out of him, which is a, a direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard many of my friends say that. Yeah. So. so they meet for dinner and Candy said that their first date was, quote, the dullest date of my life. Oh. <sighs> Not only was she not attracted to him, yeah. but he was very nervous. So that made it very complicated. He thought she was really pretty and interesting. So he couldn't think of what to talk about. Oh. So he would do things like explain in depth to her the definition of electromagnetics and other scientific mumbo oh jumbo. God, this literally reminds me exactly of somebody. <laughs> So in her mind, their first date is a bust, and yeah. she she did just end up getting a free meal out of him. That's what she's thinking. So mm -hmm. at the end of the night, she let him down gently. She made it very clear there wouldn't be a second date. Mm -hmm. But apparently it wasn't that clear because Pat sent a bouquet of roses to her at work and asked her out for another date and said, like, he had such a great time. And she thought it was so cute and cuter still that he was oblivious to the fact that she'd actually dumped him. So she gave him another pity date because okay. he just, you it know, was endearing. yeah, it was kind of endearing. So they ended up going out almost every night that he was in town visiting. And when his trip ended, he went back home, which was a few hours away. And they started writing letters to each other. Pat was so smitten with her. He was in awe of her and thought the world of her. Like it was just clear from day one. And she thought he was nice enough. So <laughs> she was willing to keep talking to him. Okay. One of Candy's friends remembers asking how it was going after they'd been dating for a few weeks. And Candy told her, I think I'm going to marry him. And her friend's like, so what's this guy's name? And Candy goes, uh, I don't. I don't remember. I, I think his name is Pete. So after about two months of dating, Pat proposed to Candy and she accepted. She later said it just made sense to say yes. He was kind and gentle. He had a good education. His family was great. He didn't have any money right now, but he was studying to be an engineer. So one day he'd be making a lot. Potential. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read this short love letter that Pat wrote to Candy just before they got married, just to really show you how differently they felt about each other. Yeah. So he wrote her this. Darling Candy, next Tuesday seems like always and yet tomorrow. I'll be forever happy on that day. We'll be together as long as we both shall live. And what we make of the rest of our lives will depend on the magnitude of our love for one another and the product of our love. I can think of nothing more worthy of my life than spending it with you. I've often wondered what an all-consuming love such as ours would be like. 
It's a never-ending anxiety, an all-consuming emotion, an awareness of everything beautiful, and you are beautiful in countless ways. I hope I'll always make you happy. I know that you've already made me overly joyous. I love you. I'm looking forward to being the father of your babies and teaching them what we both believe to be right. I'd like us to be the best parents any child would ever desire. I long for you to be at my side on a cold winter morning so that we might warm one another's bodies and souls. I want you at my side on warm summer nights so I can love you in a manner so that when I'm gone, you'll always remember. Candace, I love you. All my love forever. Pat. So he's like obsessed and she's like, wait, I thought your name was Pete. (laughs) So all I have to do is not remember their name. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) I was beautiful it was very sweet it's a beautiful manner that would almost scare me but I'm unhealthy (laughs) (laughs) but I love that that was beautiful it's very sweet yeah it was beautiful like you know I don't know how I feel about people getting engaged after two months but (laughs) you know whatever he clearly loved her Pete Pat loved her (laughs) yeah Pete, Pete Pat loved her So they get married. Pat goes on to become a very successful engineer. He made enough that Candy didn't need to work. So they got down to brass tacks and started popping out some babies. Okay. They have a daughter named Jenny and a son named Ian. And Candy was so happy to have one of each that she made a spur of the moment decision while she was still in the hospital after giving birth that she needed to get her tubes tied because she felt like a boy and a girl that's the dream so why add more and muddy the picture of her perfect family with like one more of a gender of a child yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. okay <laughs> so they bought a beautiful home on a huge lot in mckinney texas and started to immerse themselves in the community both pat and candy were agnostic but being as involved in the community as possible was all part of candy's like white picket fence dream so She really threw herself into church. She organized all the church events and fundraisers. She became very close friends with many of the women who attended, and she got really involved in the children's activities as well. So she's got the life that she's always wanted, and she does seem really, really happy and content with it for a few years anyways. It's like in 1978, like kind of right around the time where kids are big enough that they start going to school, and Mm -hmm. she's not like you know, elbow deep she's in bored like the kids again. stuff. Yeah, she's got a lot of time and now she just kind of starts to get bored. Yeah. The predictable nature of her life was now, you know, starting to take its toll on someone whose attention span wasn't very good to begin with. Yeah. And she just feels sort of like she doesn't have her own identity outside of her marriage and kids and all the church involvement isn't as fulfilling as she'd hoped it would be. So she does stuff like she starts going to school because she hadn't ever gone to college. So she's like, maybe I should try that. Maybe cool. that's going to help. It doesn't. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So she doesn't want to work, nor does she have to, but she's bored. So starting a fun business with her best friend sounds like fun. So she gets invested in that, but that's still not what scratches this itch that she's gotten. She feels like something is missing. She just can't really put her finger on it. And then it hits her. She has this like light bulb moment. Pat was so kind. He was such a stable provider and he was a really wonderful husband and father. But it was all just sort of like, like kind of just boring. She'd married him when she was so young and inexperienced. So the only real relationships that she'd had before him had been in high school, which she obviously found even more boring. So she's thinking, 
I missed out on being young and single and having sex, good sex, with different men. Okay. So she decides she's going to have an affair and that will fix her boredom. Okay, Candy. (laughs) I take my happy birthday back. (laughs) You don't deserve it anymore. So Candy told a couple of her friends about how bored she'd been and this new idea. One of them was like, I don't think that's a good idea. You might want to talk to one of my friends. She had an affair once, and I don't think she would recommend that anyone do it. So Candy talks to this friend of her friend. <laughs> affair, like Yelp review, is like one star out of five. I know, seriously. She's like, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so she talks to the this friend, and afterwards, she's more determined to have an affair. So the thrill of secrecy and forbidden desire and all of that was exactly what she wanted. She wanted a sex life straight out of a romance novel. She wants mind-bending sex that, to her knowledge, just wasn't something that you could have within a marriage. So now all she needed was to find someone to have the affair with. You know, obviously the most crucial piece to Yes, puzzle. you must go shopping for the side piece. Yeah. <laughs> So she joins the volleyball team at church. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Church volley. And she thinks about this because they meet a few times at nighttime. And And that's when all the sinful stuff happens, you know. (laughs) And she knows that Pat is not going to have any interest in joining. So Mm -hmm. she thinks this is the best place to find this guy. And everyone's wearing spandex shorts. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's where it happened. Yeah, in the late 70s. So you know they're short. They're all wearing spandex shorts. (laughs) And the irony of that, like spending more time at church to find someone to cheat with. Yeah. But it works. So Uh one time during a game, she and another guy dove for the ball at the same time and collided. It was very minor and no one noticed, but Candy was so taken aback at how good he smelled that she stopped mid-game, stepped back, looked him up and down, and decided, this is the dude. Alan Gore was nothing to write home about, but apparently he smelled so good that somehow she could take him all in his receding hairline and pudgy dad bod. And she thought to herself, this is the guy who's going to provide me with an earth shattering sexual experience. <laughs> Guys, if you're listening to this, go to the store, get some Giorgio Armani and spritz that body with it. The, it I, doesn't matter what you look like. Okay, honestly, I Googled what was the cologne. <laughs> because I was like, what could- You're like, breasts gotta wear yeah, it. <laughs> what could smell so good that it would completely blind her to what he really looks like? I am fragrance sensitive, so I understand that. Oh yeah, we all are. Well, I mean, did, you, did you find out what it was? No. Yeah. And unfortunately, I couldn't even find a photo of this guy, Alan. But he was described as receding hairline with pudgy dad bod. And not only a receding hairline at this point when they're like in their 30s, but he had had a receding hairline even in college. Oh, he was one of those. He's like one of those. He's a Bosley candidate. Yeah. So later on, after the, after this game, when she's decided Alan's my man, mm-hmm. she catches him in the parking lot when everyone is going home and she asks him, would you like to have an affair with me? And Alan is like, Uh, oh geez what (laughs) what's of that (laughs) and she's like just think about it and they go their separate ways so he is stunned beyond belief because alan is as vanilla as one can be no one has ever (laughs) ever ever (laughs) asked him to make love to them (laughs) yeah and candy she is so pretty and outgoing and she just asked him to have an affair with her like it just seemed crazy but that's wrong. You know, she's married. He's married. He's a man of, of God. <laughs> yeah. They're, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're, their kids are friends. You know, this just isn't going to work. That was a wild thing that she Logistics just suggested. But he, he's not even going to give it any thought. 
But then every week that he sees her at church, she's winking at him. She's teasing him. She's finding reasons to touch his arm, hanging around at the end of their uh, practice so that they walk to their cars at the same time. Eventually, he calls her one day while he's at work and he asks her, how would an affair even work? I love my wife and I don't want to hurt her and I don't want to leave her. And Candy tells him all she wants is sex, nothing more. She loves her husband too and she doesn't want to hurt him. And then she says, why don't you come over when one of these days on your lunch break? I'll make something for us to eat and we can discuss the details. The day he goes over, she's made lasagna for lunch. And like, it's not I, a sexy meal. It's so it's heavy. It's not even a lunch meal. Like oh. if you make lasagna from scratch, that takes hours yeah, and it's so heavy. And I love lasagna. And like I'm not trying to hate on lasagna, it's but like favorites. lunchtime is just so weird. And then to discuss like the logistics of having an affair over a lunch lasagna. It just was so weird to me. I, I could be with my dream man. Yeah. Javier Bardem and I. Yeah. We're eating lasagna. I don't want to jump him. Uh-uh, no, I want to no. lay down. No, no. Yeah. I'm Cassie. Yeah. <laughs> Quite frankly. <laughs> Quite frankly, I'm going to blow this way <laughs> yeah, up. You've got to get out of here. <laughs> so he walks into her house and he starts laughing because he sees that on her living room wall, Candy put a huge roll of paper and she wrote these, like with a Sharpie, drew two big columns and one said pros and one said cons. And she started writing in the pros and cons to having an affair. Does she have Virgo on her astrological chart at any place? Because she's definitely got a Virgo. I know there's there's some there's some Virgo in there. Mm -hmm. So they agreed there were more pros than cons, and that in order to keep this strictly physical and not allow this to damage their marriages, they'd need to plan this to a T. So they agreed to meet once every two weeks at a seedy little place off the highway, far away from town. Nobody's going to see their cars outside. They would meet during Alan's two-hour lunch break. Candy would bring a home-cooked meal. They would eat, have sex. They would each take a shower and then go back to their lives. When and if anyone developed feelings or lost interest, they'd promptly end the affair. And most importantly, there'd be little talk and zero romance. So they were both very much on the same page. Like, this is not emotional. There's no feelings. This is strictly physical. Neither of us wants to get a divorce. Neither of us wants to hurt our partners. It's like a physical desire. That was very, very, it was a very businessy type arrangement. Candy was bored, but you know, she wasn't necessarily looking to change her life. She had no desire to divorce Pat or change anything within their family. So that was her motivation to keep it as a no strings attached agreement. And then for Alan, he explained that his wife, Betty, was so fragile She simply wouldn't be able to handle hearing that he slept with someone else. And Candy didn't really know Alan's wife that well. Uh, Betty worked as an elementary school teacher, so she rarely participated at church. And when she was around, she seemed socially awkward and reserved and almost moody sometimes. Hmm. And Candy was outgoing and bubbly. And as a full-time housewife, she had all the time in the world to socialize. She and Betty just didn't click, so... When Alan said that she was fragile, you know, she's not friends with her. She doesn't know any better. So Candy just accepted it and agreed that she would do whatever she could to prevent Betty from finding out also. So Alan's wife, Betty Pomeroy, was born January 9th, 1950. So she's a Capricorn. She was a very friendly but quiet and reserved small town girl from Kansas who grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. She always wanted to be a school teacher. So after high school, she went to college and got her degree in teaching. That's where she met Alan Gore, the nerdy teacher's aide in her math class. 
She was terrible at math, but she needed to pass the class. So she asked Alan if he would tutor her. And they were just sort of together from that point on. There Mm -hmm. was like, there wasn't a point that they weren't together after that. Alan remembers that Betty was sweet and confident, very no-nonsense and organized, very Capricorn. She had a very gentle nature. She wanted to be a teacher and to just get married and have babies. And he said that he really just loved all of that about her, that she'd always known since she was a little girl what she wanted to do. And she just was very confident with herself. And he really liked that. So they get married and they have a little girl named Alyssa. Alan said in the early years of their relationship, Betty was happy and loving and she seemed very healthy. But when his job started requiring him to travel for work, she started to experience severe anxiety whenever she was alone. He'd only be gone for like a few days, but it was as if her world just crumbled, like almost as if he left her, you know, like it like was breaking up with her kind of thing. Very codependent. Yeah, her world would just crumble. And she would like act like she just couldn't go on. She started experiencing very significant health issues around the same time. That just only made the anxiety worse because then she'd get very ill and she'd have to go to the hospital and he wouldn't be there. And it was, you know, so it was just friggin' lady. Yeah. Then after she got pregnant with Alyssa, she had a really difficult pregnancy. So it was like the longest, worst nine months of her life. And then after Alyssa was born, Betty was diagnosed with postpartum depression. So between this new diagnosis, her existing health problems, and her existing battle with anxiety, Betty's quality of life just went downhill. The exhaustion of raising a new baby. Oh my gosh, yeah. And she struggled with her job too. Um, Students, parents, and even some of the faculty at the school that Betty taught at complained that she was too strict and too mean, so she was fired. So she starts working as a substitute teacher, but she couldn't find another permanent teaching job because of how moody she could be. So that also added to her depression and anxiety, obviously. And then as time went on and Alan had to travel more, that made everything so much worse also because she couldn't stand to be alone to begin with. And now even more so when now she has this tiny little baby. So she started to become very reclusive, rarely leaving the house unless like she absolutely had to or if Alan could be there with her. She was just too scared to go out and she absolutely did not go out after dark unless Alan was with her. And then despite being very religious, she rarely went to church because of her anxiety making it hard to leave the home and, you know, live a normal life. So Alan spending a lot of time there without her also made things worse. Yeah. So for the next few years after she had Alyssa, Alan and Betty stop having sex. They don't seem to have a very happy marriage. And then one day in late 1978, Betty decides she wants to have another baby, but because it's so hard for her to maintain regular work, she wants to plan this pregnancy very carefully. That way she can give birth during the summertime and she won't risk like turning down any teaching jobs that come her way. Okay. This was at the same time that Candy had approached Alan about having an affair. Yikes. And he said that part of the reason he agreed to the affair was because Betty was trying to get pregnant. Alan had the nerve to say that having sex with Betty during her fertile window made him feel used and like sex with his wife had become a chore. Then she became pregnant and they stopped having sex altogether. So all of that combined, he felt like now was as good a time as ever to have an affair. So we hate him. Yeah, well, we didn't love him. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I just extra hate him. Yeah. He actually claims that at the last minute, 
He considered backing out of the affair, but after planning everything so extensively, he felt like it would almost be an act of betrayal towards Candy if he didn't go through with it. So that's who Alan Gore is and how this affair came to be. Once again, it's the man not wanting to betray or be disliked by somebody that is not his wife or his yeah. partner. Uh-huh. They even planned what day they would start their affair. They truly yeah. hashed out every little detail. So on December 12th, 1978, Candy and Alan met at a seedy place called Como Motel just off the highway. They paid $29 for two hours. Candy made an elaborate lunch and put on her nicest lingerie only to discover that Alan was terrible in bed. Shocker. She figured like he might know how to do more things, but it was over so quickly that she didn't know for sure. Yeah. So then they spent two hours talking and eating lunch. It's not exactly the earth shattering experience that she was hoping for. No, also they said no talking. Right, exactly. But she didn't expect it to be over so soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was we like, rented what it for two hours. What so. do we do now? <laughs> but she tried to be understanding. Like this was new. They were both really nervous, and she admitted all of the secrecy and planning was exciting. So they continued meeting like this for several months. She even noted that the seediness of the motel added to the excitement because it was so different from their homes. And I was like, oh, that is disgusting. You get lice from stuff like that. You get lice and bed bugs and like that's scabies. Like, yuck. Yeah. So after months of this, Alan told her he'd need to cool it for a while. Betty, you know, was pregnant with their second baby and she was nearing the end of her pregnancy. So he needed to be available to her 24 seven in case she went into labor. Like he couldn't risk being away from his office for two hours, mm-hmm. you know, and she wouldn't be able to find him. And then once the baby arrived, he knew he'd need to be home for a few weeks. So Candy was totally understanding and agreed. He definitely needed to be there for his wife, but secretly she was getting bored. Like she was coming to the realization that after months of doing this and the sex wasn't getting any better, it probably meant that it wasn't ever going to get better <laughs> at all. And then just if you need another reason to hate him. I don't, but okay. <laughs> when Candy agreed so readily, Alan was like, oh, this is why she's so much better than Betty. She's so understanding and she listens to me when I need something. Betty never responds like that. So they agree it's probably better to just like end the affair. So they do. And after they do, suddenly they both have this renewed desire to improve each of their marriages. So things between Betty and Alan improve drastically. She seems way happier, more confident. She went out more and things between Candy and Pat didn't seem that bad to begin with, but they said things improved for them too. So all you're saying is that an affair is a recipe for a happy relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say it's like such a novel idea that when you stop having sex with other people, suddenly your marriage improves. You can focus on your partner. It's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. Something to think about. Science. (laughs) Data and science. Science. (laughs) Uh, So life goes on. Candy actually has another affair. This one with a guy who is much better at sex, but he's very clingy um, and romantic and he wanted he and Candy to leave their spouses. So she had to dump him and just, I guess she just had to accept the fact that she can't keep having affairs. So Betty gives birth to their second daughter, Bethany, and then the postpartum depression is back full force. She tells Alan that she has this feeling that she just can't let go of. Every time she holds their new baby, She has this nagging feeling that she's not going to see her grow up. 
And Alan's like, just tries to reassure her, you know, your hormones are all out of whack. You just had this baby. She's so new and precious. We love her. Of course, it's, you know, sad to think of something like that, but don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. So around the same time, um, this is a few months after the affair ended, Candy was out of town one weekend and Pat was looking for their old love letters. Things had improved so much between them and Candy seemed so happy and he just, he felt closer to her the way it had been in the beginning. So for the sake of like reminiscing, he wanted to read their old love letters from when they first met. But when he went to the place that Candy had always kept them, he found a letter from Alan Gore, some guy that goes to their church. In it, he details many of their sexual encounters, their emotional connection, the friendship they've developed through this secret affair, and how he wishes her well after they close this chapter. So obviously, Pat is devastated. But instead of being angry with her or even leaving her, he blames himself. He feels like he let his wife down. He works too much and he's neglected his marriage. And so she must have sought comfort elsewhere. Oh, sweet man. I would like to hug him. Yeah. So he tells her he knows and that he forgives her. Although he didn't know about the second affair that she was actually in the middle of. And yeah, she didn't, actively she, having. She didn't volunteer that info to him. So he thinks that he just finds about finds out about the only affair, forgives her, and they move on from this. He trusts that she's not going to sleep with Alan again, and they agree that they'll be mature about this for their daughter's sake because she's best friends with Alan and Betty's daughter, Alyssa. Ew. I know. So about six months has passed since Candy and Alan have ended their affair. It's June 12th, 1980. It's vacation Bible school week for the kids at church. So when they get out for the day, Candy's daughter begs her to let Alyssa sleep over that night. Candy calls Betty and confirms it's okay. And Betty says, just bring Alyssa home tomorrow after church. So the kids have a sleepover at the, at the Montgomery's house that night. Mm -hmm. The next day on the morning of Friday, June 13th, Candy had a jam-packed day. She would take the kids to vacation Bible school, stay all morning to help with the activities. Then afterwards, she'd drop Alyssa off at home. She and her two kids would go pick up Father's Day cards for that weekend, run some errands, then they'd be home for a few hours. Then they'd pick up Pat from work, and the family was going to the movies to see the newly released Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Nice. But that morning, the kids begged for Alyssa to go to the movies with them, which would mean sleeping over again. But it would also mean that, you know, if she's staying with them the rest of the day, Candy would need to take her to her swim lesson in the afternoon. So Candy calls Betty a couple of times to see if this change of plans is okay, but she doesn't get through to her. And she's like, well, you know, she's got a new baby and she's yeah. probably just preoccupied. I'm sure she's not going to care anyway, so I'll just pop over and get the swimsuit. So Candy participates in all the kids' activities that she had committed to at church for in the morning. Then she goes to one of the other moms and says, I have to run some errands. I need to get Father's Day cards from Target and pick up Alyssa's swimsuit from her house. The kids begged her to stay over again, so now I'll have to take her to her afternoon swim lesson, but I'll be back in time for the show. So this was around 9.30 in the morning, and the kids were scheduled to have a performance at 11 a.m. that Candy had promised to be there for, so that's what she was referencing. Okay. So she's like, I'm going to be gone for an hour and a half. Yeah, quick sec. So she heads out. A few hours goes by. Candy misses the performance completely, and this is 1980, so you know there's no cell phones. And just as people start asking, like, where's Candy? And even her daughter, Jenny, goes up to the one, one of the moms and is like, do you know where my mom is? Because she saw that her mom wasn't in the audience yeah. during the performance. So just as that's happening, Candy pulls into the parking lot. 
and she's like all out of breath and she's like, oh my gosh, I went to the Gores to get Alyssa's swimsuit. Betty and I got to chatting and I lost track of time. So I jump in the car and I go to Target to get Father's Day cards. But just as I was walking in, I realized my watch had stopped working at 1020. So I asked an employee at the time and it was already 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. So then I had to jump back in the car and race back here, but I still missed the show. And the moms are like, okay, yeah, like fine. Well, it's lunchtime, so grab a plate. Yeah, like it's no just big like, deal. yeah, you don't need to go into so much detail. So during lunch, one of the moms notices that Candy is quieter than normal. And she asks, hey, how come you're so quiet? And Candy smiles and says, because I'm eating and it's not polite to talk with food in your mouth. The same, I know. The same woman notices that despite this being a hot day in June in Texas, Candy is wearing sneakers instead of her normal sandals the ones that she'd actually been wearing earlier that day. Mm -hmm. She also notices that Candy periodically keeps getting up in the midst of eating to go to a mirror and messes with her hair, trying to restyle her hairline, then sits back down and continues eating. Okay. So after lunch, everyone disperses. Uh, Candy tells the kids that Alyssa's mom said it was okay for her to stay over again. So Candy takes the kids to the store to pick out Father's Day cards. Then they go home for a bit, then off to Alyssa's swimming lessons, and then off to the movies. So later that evening, after they've gotten home, Alan calls the Montgomery's house and he asks Candy if she's spoken to Betty. And she's like, well, I saw her this morning when I stopped by to get Alyssa's swimsuit. She seemed fine. We chatted for a bit and I got the swimsuit and I left and I haven't spoken to her since. And Alyssa's going to stay over again tonight, so I'll bring her home in the morning. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I aren't you home by now? Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't she have already told you that? And so he tells her he's actually out of town on a business trip. He left that morning and he's been calling the house all day and hasn't gotten through and he's starting to get worried. And now he's more worried knowing that Alyssa's not actually at home. So Candy offers to go to the house to check on Betty. And he's like, no, just, just stay home with the kids. So she's like, okay, well, let me know if I can help. I can call around to local hospitals or, you know, call the police if you're worried. And he's like, I think I just need to call my neighbors and ask them to go over. I'll call you back when I know more. So from Alan's perspective, he remembers that morning when he was packing for his business trip. Betty was very upset about him leaving. This had become a very normal routine. He avoided traveling for work because of how upset it made his wife she dreaded him leaving and he dreaded her falling apart the way that she always would. Like she'd cry for days leading up to his departure. Mm -hmm. Then she'd have crippling anxiety the whole time he was gone. He'd have to go above and beyond to try to make her feel better. But ultimately nothing really did because all she wanted was for him to stay and he couldn't. In fact, once early on in their marriage, he was sent to Switzerland for two months And Betty was so out of her mind upset about it that she called Alan's boss and complained and begged him to send Alan home. Okay, well, that's an issue. Yeah, it's a big... That's a a problem. problem. I I want to side with her, but... mm, It's challenging, yeah. And then to make matters worse, on the morning of the 13th, Betty's period was two weeks late. They had agreed two kids would be it for them, especially given how challenging her pregnancies had been. And they'd been spending so much time working on their marriage recently that Betty was worried an unexpected pregnancy would reverse all of their hard work. But not only that, she and Alan had a huge European trip planned for just the two of them, and they were supposed to depart next week. They viewed it as like a sort of second honeymoon, and a difficult pregnancy would definitely ruin the trip. Yeah, of course. So Betty was doing her best to cope with all of this, but she was still very upset that morning. 
And hearing Alan's voice while he was away always soothed her. So during travel like this, they would coordinate and plan their phone calls. He'd always say like, okay, when I, you know, when I get to my gate, I'll call you. And then when I land and I get to my hotel room, I'll call you again. So she would always know what time to expect the phone call and she'd stay close to the phone. And today was no different. He gave her a schedule of when he was going to call. She said, okay, um, I'll make sure to be by the phone. I'm going to spend all morning at home doing laundry, uh, sewing some new clothes for our trip. Mm-hmm. And um, later this afternoon, Candy is going to drop Alyssa off and I'm going to take her to her swim lesson. Okay. So he'd called her as planned from his gate, no answer, but he assumed that Alyssa was home by then. So he figured Betty was busy with both of the girls. He called again a few hours later, well after dark, and still no answer. So he keeps calling and calling, letting it ring 12 to 15 times each call, and nobody answered. So finally, when he calls Candy and learns that Alyssa was staying over again, that really worries him more because he's like, I thought she was preoccupied with two kids. This doesn't make any sense. So something has to be very wrong. So he starts calling his neighbors, and soon a group of neighborhood men have swarmed the house, knocking on doors and windows, yelling for Betty, but no one comes to the door. So they find a way in, only to discover the house looks normal. There's no sign of Betty or the baby. It's quiet. They start walking through the home. Someone walks into Bethany's nursery and finds her in her crib. She's covered in her own excrement. Her diaper has come off and she's red and blotchy. It's evident to all of them that she's been left in her crib for several hours. As soon as they walk in, she starts screaming. And so one of them takes her and just rushes her out to a neighbor's house. And they know this this is really bad. Of course. So right then, one of the men walks towards the closed utility room door. He opens it and finds what he said he can only describe as something out of a horror film. Betty is collapsed on the floor. The entire room is literally covered in blood. And based off of her head injuries, it looks as though she shot herself in the head. So the police are called. Someone calls Alan and informs him. Alan calls Candy and tells her that it seems like Betty committed suicide. He's coming home immediately, but he needs Candy to keep Alyssa, obviously, at their home. And of course, she agrees. She's horrified and promises not to tell the kids that, and that she'll keep Alyssa for as long as Alan needs, and she'll help however she can. She can. So, at the crime scene, the police initially agree with the neighbor's assessment. It seems that Betty did shoot herself in the head while standing in the utility room, you know, leaving Bethany in her crib. But as the night goes on, they realize she wasn't actually shot. Someone hit Betty in the head several times with a three-foot axe that was found near her body. Oh, okay. My God. Yeah. An axe murder. Yeah. In the utility room where she was found, they find a bloody thumbprint on the white refrigerator door and a bloody shoe print from a woman's rubber sandal near Betty's body. Mm -hmm. In the bathroom, they find several blonde hairs in the shower and evidence that someone had stood under the shower head and washed off blood. On the kitchen table, they see that the newspaper is folded open to showcase a movie review on The Shining, which was a new horror film about Jack Nicholson's character who goes crazy and uses an axe to, you know, chop doors down. On the coffee table in the living room, there's a business card for a woman named Candy Montgomery. 
And as the neighbors start gathering around all the excitement outside the Gore's home, an older woman approaches the police and tells them that her young granddaughter, Tina, had gone over to the Gore's home that morning. Tina was friends with Alyssa, so that morning around 1045, she asked her grandma if she could go to Alyssa's house to play. So Tina said that as she skipped over to the house, and she's only a couple doors down, she saw a blonde lady come out of the Gore's home, hurriedly get into her car and drive away fast. Tina hopped up onto the porch and knocked on the door a bunch, but no one answered. She could hear Alyssa's baby sister inside crying really loudly, and Alyssa's dogs were barking a ton, but no one came to the door. She saw that Alyssa's parents' cars were both in the driveway, but eventually she just gave up and she went home. And she told her grandma when she got back that Alyssa's baby sister was screaming inside, but no one was doing anything. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Her grandma didn't wasn't like concerned, concerned, so nothing came of that. The medical examiner concluded that Betty suffered a total of 41 axe wounds, 28 of them being to her head, and the other 13 to her neck, shoulders, arms, torso, and legs. Horrific. 40 of those wounds, 40 of the 41 wounds occurred while Betty's heart was still beating. So without witness testimony, they don't know if she was actually conscious during the attack. Hopefully she was unconscious, but they know that her heart was still pumping. The wounds to her head were so deep that they surmised that similar to when you're chopping wood and the axe gets stuck, they surmised that the axe got stuck in her skull several times, forcing the killer to wiggle to release it, only to then deliver another blow. So this murder was vicious, to say the least. Like, I don't even think vicious is the right word, Like, mm. I, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the most horrific and violent, gruesome, gruesome everything that is awful. So between small town gossip spreading like wildfire and the police department's inexperience with a crime of this severity, this police department was so small, they only had three squad cars. Yeah. This theory surrounding the number 13 began circulating and how it could point to this being maybe a cult-related murder. Wait, what year is this? <laughs> 1980. Okay, I was going to say, is it like during the time of all the like satanic panic? It's starting to. Yeah. So the date was Friday the 13th. The Gore's house was the 13th in from the corner. 13 hours went by after Betty's murder before her body was discovered. Mm. The week she died was the same week that the very first Friday the 13th horror movie was released. And then, spoiler alert, the murder suspect was arrested 13 days after the murder. Bizarre coincidences. It's lots of bizarre things. Also super weird. <laughs> this story that I wrote is 13 pages. Oh, I know. Isn't that so weird? But anyways, the whole thirteen ended up thing, not being it a ends thing. up not being a thing because the murder suspect is not related to a cult at no. all. So on Saturday the fourteenth, Candy took Alyssa home. It was she was just intending to drop her off, but then Alan was like, "No, please come in. I want you to be here when I tell her." What so Candy's like, "Okay." So she, you know, yeah. walks in and. They all sit down in the living room, just a few feet away from this closed utility room door. And he tells his six-year-old daughter that her mom isn't coming home. And they start crying. And soon Candy's holding them both, comforting them. And they're all crying together. Candy said for the next three days, she was on the phone constantly with all the women in their town. Everyone is gossiping and freaking out, reminding each other to stock up on guns and lock your doors. And, you know, there's a crazed axe murderer running loose. So protect yourselves. 
Candy and many of the women from church cooked a bunch of meals for the Gore family and Candy volunteered to bring the food to them with this other woman. So they met Betty's parents, siblings, and extended family. And while they're unloading the food, the other woman that Candy had come with was like, a lot of this needs to go in the freezer, but I can't bring myself to go into the utility room. So will you do it? Mm-hmm. And Candy just like took a deep breath and walked into the utility room that everyone's been talking about for days about how mm-hmm. vicious this axe murder was. And she said it was it had been cleaned, but it was still eerie. And she put the food away and got out of there really quickly. Mm-hmm. So she paid her respects to Betty's parents and then went home. In that night, Pat walked by the bathroom door and saw Candy changing a bandage on her toe. And he was like, oh my God, how did you cut your toe so badly? And she told him that she stubbed it on their screen door. It was something that Pat had been meaning to fix, but hadn't gotten around to it. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, but that looks like really bad. Key manipulation. Blame it on something that your husband was supposed to fix in a moment like that. Exactly. And so he's like, I'm so sorry. I'll fix it right away. And he asked her like if she needs stitches because it was a really, really deep cut and she just waved him off and was like, no, it's not that bad. So right away within a few days of the murder, police got Alan to admit that he had had an affair with a fellow churchgoer named Candy Montgomery. And because Candy herself admitted that she was likely the last person to see Betty alive. And uh, when the police asked her about the affair, she told the truth. They obviously zeroed in on her as the prime suspect. But she was very cooperative. She said she understands the importance of her interview and that she has nothing to hide. So she'll give them whatever she needs, whatever they need. She also acknowledged how bad it looks on both her and Alan, given that they'd had an affair. But they both insisted it was long since over and neither one of them felt any ill will towards each other. And she was very adamant that she didn't have any issues with Betty and that she didn't want to be with Alan. So... It just didn't make sense that she was a suspect. It's not a crime of passion or in the, you know, exactly. She agreed to provide her fingerprints to the police. And when they turned out to be a match with the bloody thumbprint found near Betty's body, suddenly Candy's tone changes and she gets an attorney. She hires some guy Sugar. from her church who isn't even a defense attorney. He's like not a criminal defense attorney. He's like a, a civil court attorney or something oh, like that. Man. So she was just like, you, you're your lawyer. Just be like, you're mine Bob. now. <laughs> and then 13 days after the death, she is arrested and charged with Betty's murder. This goes to trial in like record time. Betty was killed in June and the trial started in October, which just wow. seems like lightning fast. I feel like every time you hear about a murder trial, Year it's like later. many years later. Mm-hmm. This also isn't totally relevant, but it's like a little true crime fun fact. The courthouse in McKinney, Texas, that Candy's trial was held in, was the same one where uh, Charles Tex Watson was Mm -hmm. held for extradition in 1970 before being sent back to California to stand trial for his role in the infamous Tate and LaBianca murders Mm -hmm. from 1969. Anyways, so tons of people testify that all the interactions they had with Candy on the 13th were normal. She seemed normal and they all knew her to be a kind person. Everyone expressed shock and disbelief that Candy could be involved, including Alan himself. At his own wife's murder trial, he takes the stand and told the jury how Betty could be depressed and unstable, almost volatile at times, and that he only knew Candy to be a peaceful and law-abiding citizen. So imagine what that was like for Betty's parents sitting in the courtroom, listening to their son-in-law speaking in support of the woman on trial for killing their daughter. 
So as hurtful as that was, they weren't necessarily surprised. They had developed a conflict with Alan very quickly after Betty's death. He pawned his kids off on them more than seemed reasonable. He seemed less and less interested in the investigation and then later the trial. And whenever he would update them on the case, he spent more time expressing sympathy for the Montgomerys rather than focus on justice for his wife. One time he was saying, it's a shame how expensive this legal battle has become for Candy. And Betty's dad interrupted him and said, if that woman killed Betty, I don't care if she loses every penny she has. And Alan said, well, yeah, I can see that. It felt to Betty's family that the more time that passed, the less Alan cared she was gone. And to sort of confirm that, three months after Betty's death, Alan married the newly divorced organist from their church. Yeah, he sounds like he was real relieved, Uh if anything. So when he took the stand, he was so emotionless and unbothered. It's like he didn't lose any sleep over his wife being dead and didn't care at all that his former mistress was on trial for the murder. He was clinical and indifferent in his responses. And he didn't even have a reaction when the attorneys brought out the three-foot axe still covered in Betty's blood and brain matter and showed it to the courtroom. They asked Alan to identify it as the one he'd kept in his garage. And he casually looks at it and shrugs and says, yeah, it looks like mine. What is with these sociopaths? Yeah, so that's who Alan is. Like yeah. such, such a gem. The most memorable day in court was on October 23rd when Candy herself took the stand. She had already pled not guilty, but when she got on the stand, she shocked everyone by detailing what exactly happened that day at Betty's home. She claimed that she couldn't remember anything, but that after multiple intense hypnosis sessions with a psychiatrist, she remembered what happened. So whether you believe this or not is entirely up to you. The evidence found in Betty's home actually coincides with with what Candy says, so you can keep that in mind as I say all of this, but mm-hmm. just remember this is a one-sided version of, of well, events. Of course, yeah. So when Candy arrived, she said Betty was surprised to see her. This was roughly 10 a.m., and she wasn't expecting Candy to come by until about noon. So Betty invited Candy in. She offered her some coffee. Uh, they sat and chatted for a bit. Bethany had just gone down for her nap, and Betty was finishing her coffee, sewing something on her sewing machine, and watching the Phil Donahue show. Candy claims they had a pleasant interaction. Betty seemed fine, maybe a little tired. They stepped out into the backyard to play with the new puppies they'd just gotten. Then back inside where Candy told Betty about her new business venture with a girlfriend of hers. And she put one of her new business cards on the coffee table. Candy asked about Alyssa staying over again and Betty was fine with it. She gave Candy Alyssa's swimsuit and towel and a handful of peppermints and said, Alyssa doesn't like to put her head underwater. So when she does, we give her a peppermint. That's the reward we use. So make sure you give this to her when she does it. And so Candy stood up and said, okay, no problem. She said that she she made it clear she was about to leave now and she was expecting Betty to get up and walk her to the door. Mm-hmm. But Betty just sat there staring at Candy. And then she asked, Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? And Candy said, no, of course not. Before Betty had even finished her sentence. So she, you know, mm-hmm. she had sort of shot herself in the foot with that. Then she's like, okay. Yes, I did have an affair with him, but it's over. It's been over for a long time and it meant nothing to me, I swear. So Betty just stared at her for a few seconds and then said, okay, wait here. She got up and walked into the utility room, into the garage, and then walked back to the living room with a three-foot axe in her hand. 
And the thing is, Candy said that she didn't necessarily feel threatened. She said Betty was standing in a very casual stance and holding the axe casually at her side, like almost loosely. She told scarier. Yeah. She told Candy she didn't want her to ever see Alan again. And Candy is like, I won't. I I don't want him. I swear. And I, I think under the circumstances, I'll just bring Alyssa home and skip the movie tonight. And Betty was like, no, keep her tonight. I, I don't feel like seeing you again. Just bring her back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So then Betty set the axe down next to the washing machine in the utility room and just stood there looking absolutely broken. And Candy said that she just said, you know, please just don't forget to give her the peppermints. Mm-hmm. Like she just, you know, she went from feeling a little bit angry to and defeated. a little threatening with the axe and to just totally broken and defeated. And Candy said that she felt so bad that she walked over to her and touched her arm and said, I'm so, so sorry. And that is when something snapped in Betty. She erupted with rage. She slapped Candy's hand away and shoved her as hard as she could. Candy fell backwards, and as Betty walked towards her, Candy scrambled into the utility room trying to get away. Betty grabbed the axe and held it across her diagonally and said, I'm having another baby, and you can't have him this time. And Candy is on the floor insisting she doesn't want Alan. She never wanted him and she swears she won't ever see him again. And then they sort of just stared at each other for a minute. Candy said Betty's eyes were so foggy and dull like she was in a trance. And the more that Candy insisted that Alan and the affair didn't matter to her, the angrier Betty became. Of course, I get that. I, I do too. And then Betty said, I have to kill you now. And a massive brawl takes place. Something animalistic has been triggered in both of them and they're now fighting over control of the axe and they both instinctually know they're going to fight to the death. Mm -hmm. This brawl went on for several minutes. Betty had control of the axe the whole time and Candy was essentially flip-flopping between trying to get a hold of it or then trying to run away only to have Betty block her and corner her again. Mm -hmm. At one point, the edge of the blade knocked Candy in the head right at her hairline, and she started to bleed. And a few minutes later, Betty accidentally dropped the axe, and the blade landed on Candy's toe, leaving a very deep cut. Candy said she felt like they were both in this blacked-out rage-type trance, like just feeding off this primal need to survive. Candy got control of the axe, and she brought it down hard on the back of Betty's head. Betty collapsed. Candy dropped the axe and ran towards the front door. But before she reached it, Betty had gotten up and chased her, tackling her before she got to the handle. Candy got up and ran towards the utility room to try to escape through the garage, but she couldn't get the door open. And now Betty had her cornered again. So Candy started yelling, I don't want him. Let me go. I don't want him. And Betty is bleeding from the back of her head. She's growing weaker with blood loss the you know this axe is three feet long it's heavy and she was trying to hold it above her head but she couldn't because she's getting weaker candy's yelling now and so betty puts a finger to her lips and says shh and this is the moment in which candy claims something came over her and she lost control she grabbed the axe from betty held it high above her head and then delivered blow after blow after blow to any part of betty she could reach And despite being literally butchered with an axe, Betty continued moving, trying to stand, trying to shield her head, trying to move away from the blade, trying to survive, and Candy wouldn't stop. 
Betty's brain matter began to seep out of her cranial cap, and she finally collapsed to the floor and curled into the fetal position, trying to become tinier however she could under this attack, and still, Candy continued chopping away. She stopped only when she was too exhausted to keep going. She stood back, taking in the scene, and ran to the bathroom. She said she didn't even think she just stepped into the shower fully clothed and started washing away the blood. She said she went back to the utility room and tried to wipe up the blood, but it was just overwhelming. And no matter how much she cleaned off the floor, Betty's body kept bleeding. And then something just came over her. She needed to go about her day as if this didn't happen. So she started doing one task at a time. She grabbed her keys, then she walked to her car, she started the car, she drove to her house, she took her clothes off and washed and dried her clothes, then put them back on. She bandaged her toe and then put on sneakers to cover it. Then she got in the car and drove to church. And then she realizes that her watch stopped working. It had stopped when she'd stepped into Betty's shower and she hadn't noticed that she'd gotten it wet. Now she realizes she's missed the 11 a.m. kids performance at church and needs to come up with an explanation as to why. So she said that she just went through the motions all day, acting casual at church. She wasn't talkative during lunch because she couldn't stop thinking about Betty. The cut on her hairline kept bleeding, so she'd get up and go to the mirror to dab away the blood, disguised as, you know, fixing her hair. She took the kids to get Father's Day cards. She took Alyssa to her swimming lesson. And then they all picked up Pat and went to see a movie. All the while, she keeps telling herself that what happened earlier didn't really happen and no one will ever know. So when Alan calls expressing concern for Betty, Candy decided then and there to play dumb. When she dropped Alyssa off and sat there as Alan told his little girl that her mother was gone forever, Candy held them while they cried. When Betty's family arrived in town, Candy made them food and paid her respects. And two days after the murders, a town gossip called Candy to tell her there was a rumor that the police found a woman's sandal print next to the body. So while they were on the phone, Candy grabbed her sandals and a pair of scissors. She put the phone between her ear and her shoulder, and she went to town cutting the shoes to pieces as the gossip on the other end went on and on about all the gory details of Betty's final moments. And then after hanging up, Candy took the pieces of her sandals out to the garbage bin and threw them away. She said that because everyone initially thought Betty had shot herself, Candy, being the idiot that she is, believed that this meant she was off the hook for good. She didn't think the police would realize Betty was actually axed to death, but then after they matched her prints to the ones in the house, she realized she needed an attorney because she didn't know what happened that day, she claims. Okay. So her attorney decides they're going to spin this into a self-defense slash temporary insanity defense. So her lawyer set her up to be hypnotized, and the psychiatrist linked the moment that Betty shushed Candy all the way back to that incident that Candy experienced as a four-year-old when she was hysterical and her mom only shushed her. They claim this triggered a moment of insanity in Candy's brain so she can't be held accountable for what she had done. Obviously, in my opinion, and I'm sure you're with me on this one, I don't think your mom shushing you once as a kid necessarily translates to you taking an axe to a grown woman and chopping her down like a tree. Not necessarily. (laughs) No. (laughs) Hitting someone with an axe 41 times, many of the times with the axe getting stuck and needing to be wiggled free. I just don't think temporary insanity really cuts it. It just doesn't seem, Uh -uh. doesn't seem like it to me. 
So the trial concluded after Candy's testimony and everyone expected the verdict to be reached within a few days, maybe even longer. But the jury surprised everyone by reaching a verdict in only three hours. Candy was found not guilty. Is this Texas? (laughs) Yes, it is in Texas. (laughs) Oh my God. So they think that she's not guilty because of... The insanity. Insanity. Mm-hmm. And the, the overkill aspect, They the jurors said that they didn't even take into account how many times she hit her. Okay, so in my head, I'm thinking, I obviously think Candy's a monster for multiple reasons, but you can, uh, you can put yourself in that position and see how when someone is fighting you and you are defending, 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 and you finally have the upper hand where you're like, it is an animalistic thing, mm-hmm. I think, to just be like, I am ending this. Yeah. It's like when people are in the movies and you hit them once and then they run away. It's like, right. keep hitting them, you yeah. idiot. Yeah. I can see how that switched in her of like, I am not giving her another opportunity to hurt me. Yeah. But then, with that being said, it's the going about it as if nothing happened. Right. It beca- and that was part of the part of the issue that the jurors thought is like, well, we can all understand a self-defense and trying to survive. But mm-hmm. if that was the case, why didn't you call the police? Exactly. You know, the fact that you went and hit it is the issue. And, and they all ended up voting that she was not guilty. So she leaves the courthouse a free woman. The crowd outside who had all gathered to catch a glimpse of this axe-wielding housewife all screamed at Candy as she left. They spit at her and called her a murderer. So uh, what do you think she did? She and Pat went home and invited friends over to celebrate with champagne and bologna sandwiches. The issue is the people that went. Well, yeah. Like, they're crazy for throwing that and then him him staying with his wife. But the people are like, sandwiches and champagne? Hell yes. Honestly, <laughs> also, if someone serves you champagne and bologna. I don't feel like that pairs well. I feel like that just shows the person is extremely unstable. <laughs> I was going to say, it's very tacky. <laughs> it's like, it really shows their instability, I yeah. feel like. And yeah, so did I mention already, I don't think I did, that Pat stayed with her. He stayed with her through the whole trial, through her admitting that she had actually been lying to everyone. And, you know, supposedly this was actually just a moment of insanity. Mm -hmm. And even during the trial, her, the, the news of her second affair came out Yeah, and he, you know, he, he heard all of that and he was upset, but they uh, worked it out. So within a few days of Candy's not guilty verdict, she and Pat sold their house and moved out of state because everyone believed she had gotten away with cold-blooded, vicious axe murder, so their life in Texas was effectively over. And surprisingly, they stayed together for quite a while after this, but eventually they divorced and they both changed their names and started their separate lives. Candy is now a licensed counselor working with her daughter, Jenny, in Dawsonville, Georgia, She and Pat and the rest of their family participated heavily in the book that I got all of this information from. But outside of that, they refused to speak about this publicly. Hey, question really quick. How can someone that was able to get off of a murder trial with temporary insanity be able to then be legally being allowed to? Because she didn't serve time for it. She was found not guilty. You can be charged with anything. And as long it doesn't go on your record unless you've actually been convicted. Oh my God. Can you imagine getting advice from this woman? Oh, I, I was looking up like the reviews. It's fascinating. And so many people are just like, how could you trust someone like this? Yeah. She, you know, it's just people know who she is. Yeah, so. for sure. Alan Gore had married uh, that organist from church only three months after Betty's death. And they ended up divorcing almost as quickly after, uh, which is not a surprise to anybody. Seemed like they were built on true love and <laughs> solid foundation. <laughs> yeah. 
Not long after that, Alan ended up losing custody of his daughters, Bethany and Alyssa, and Betty's parents legally adopted them and raised both of the girls. So I just want to say that I normally, when I'm doing a story, I really avoid trying to tell it from the murderer's perspective because, I mean, I want to try to combat this morbid obsession that we have by focusing more on the victim who often get forgotten in it. But unfortunately with this story, Candy is the only person who walked out of that utility room that day. So her story is the only one that we have to go off of. And a lot of the physical evidence found in the Gore's house that day had matched Candy's version of events. So it seems like she's being honest about most of it. But even if that is the case and she is telling the truth, we still will never know what Betty was thinking or feeling that day because Candy used an axe to butcher her 41 times and then left her there to be dealt with by whoever was unlucky enough to find her. And that is the story of Candy Montgomery, the housewife who got away with murdering Betty Gore. Just when I think that I can't be shocked by human behavior, it's like, we are so messed up. I know. <laughs> Not we, you and I. Not you and I. We, like we, we ain't doing this. The capacity in which people will uh, just, that was nuts. Nuts butts. Nuts butts. It's crazy. It is crazy. It's, Poor Betty. I know. It's just so devastating. And I, she really struggled with postpartum depression and anxiety and, yeah. and all of those things. And so I was trying to be honest about that and not paint it as, you know, everything was fine and dandy. She was struggling a lot and she was reclusive, but she needed help. Like she, she need, needed yeah. to be going to a psychiatrist and taking medication. Right. Yet her husband was more focused on. Bang and candy. Bang and candy. And that when you like research this story, even through that book that was, you know, so detailed and heavily researched, Betty is just constantly painted as this like loose cannon that probably did try to kill Candy with an axe. And yeah. it's like it doesn't make that it, doesn't that make she what she didn't deserve that. No, she didn't. And you don't. We don't know for certain that that's really what happened. Like all we, all we know for certain is that Candy butchered her. But all, that's it. Also, if you're married to somebody that has no issue having an affair with somebody, has no remorse over that. But then on top of that, I kept thinking that when she would be losing her mind, when he'd be going out of town, it made me wonder if there was some sort of dynamic where this wasn't the first time he was having affairs, and every time he went out of town, she was thinking what is really going on and she drove herself insane by an unhealthy dynamic and it's like we focus so much on women being crazy and it's like let's look at the men that might be causing some of this instability yeah yeah let's take a little responsibility yeah I totally agree so that's the story it's super sad and unfairly portrays the victim in not the greatest light so no. i tried to no, you did a really do good it job. a little bit differently but but it's a crazy story and so uh the limited series that hbo and hulu are both doing mm-hmm. i i did not double check to see if they were actually released yet but elizabeth moss is in one of them love her. and then elizabeth olsen love her is in the other are they playing candy i think they both are oh yeah. that's they did a good job picking yeah leads. I, w- I will watch both of those yeah so uh, this is our our finale. Yeah, season, season five, five finale. finale. Yeah. So we're going to do our usual, the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a bonus episode. We have a Q&A about mm-hmm. love and relationships. Mm-hmm. And we have a guest episode. And then we'll be back with our, our normal, regular, scheduled, regularly scheduled our regular programming. Scheduled programming. <laughs> Crime and murder. Yeah. It was fun. Like always. Is it though? Is it though? (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed it. I like working with my best friend. Yeah, me too. Cool. Okay, cool. Love you. I love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.